Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Quinn Slobodian, who was last in this show in January to discuss his book Globalists, an Intellectual and Political History of Neoliberalism, published by Harvard University Press. That word is sometimes used sloppily, but it's a real thing, and Slobodian's work is a critical look at them from the left, but one that takes them seriously. Its marquee names, like Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and James Buchanan, were thinkers who not only had firm ideas of what the world should look like, but also had plans for how to get there. Slobodian has several other recent essays that I thought worth discussing. One is in Mutant Neoliberalism, a collection of essays edited by William Callison and Zachary Manfredi, published by Fordham University Press. That looks at neoliberal opposition to the EU, a project that is often thought to be a prime instance of neoliberalism in action. And two others are about the neoliberals' attitude towards the rebellions of the 1960s. Many people on the left think of neoliberals as partisans of the doctrine of homo economicus, the view of humans as rational calculators, who rank order their preferences and maximize their returns as if they had perfect knowledge of the world around them. The classic neoliberals were not partisans of this view, and were often critical of it for a variety of reasons, ranging from a belief in the limited nature of human knowledge to frankly racist views about the appropriateness of certain nationalities or cultures to life under capitalism. The contemporary European right is an odd amalgam of neoliberal economics and what Slobodian calls a McKinseyized scientific racism. First, to set the stage, a short excerpt from Margaret Thatcher's classic 1988 speech in Bruges, Belgium, denouncing the project of European unification. But working more closely together does not require power to be centralized in Brussels or decisions to be taken by an appointed bureaucracy. Indeed, it is ironic that just when those countries, such as the Soviet Union, which have tried to run everything from the center, are learning that success depends on dispersing power and decisions away from the center, there are some in the community who seem to want to move in the opposite direction. We have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, only to see them reimposed at a European level, with a European superstate exercising a new dominance from Brussels. That was Margaret Thatcher in 1988. And now on to Quinn Slobodian, an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. A lot of people are reading Brexit as a rebellion against neoliberalism, which in one sense makes sense, but on another it doesn't, because a lot of the, the Brexiteers want to make Britain more like Texas and view uh, the Brussels and the EU as a, some sort of a statist and crypto-socialist institution. So let's talk about the history of neoliberalism and the EU. A lot of the, the neoliberals have uh, opposed this European project for a couple of decades, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the useful things about focusing in on a discrete group of intellectuals, like I tend to do looking at card-carrying neoliberal intellectuals of the Mont Pelerin Society and such, is that you can see the kind of granular arguments about, you know, solutions for securing global capitalism, which is what neoliberalism is always asking the question about. And there you can see that there's vigorous arguments happening through the 1980s and 1990s about Europe. Like, is Europe the fix or is Europe not the fix? And the group that believed that it was the fix put a lot of stock in the constitution that was at the heart of the European Union into the 1990s, the Maastricht Treaty. So there really was this belief that does um, accord well with the work of people like James Buchanan, that if you can get the legal code right, get the constitution right, then you can tie the hands of lawmakers and you can make sure that they won't overspend and everyone will be locked into this 3% um, deficit target and uh, potentially deviant members of the Eurozone will become good acting German type economic actors. 
there was a, a cohort of the neoliberals who strongly believed that that would be the case, and they actually had a lot of faith in the creation of something like the European Central Bank. But almost immediately, they were their their hopes were dashed, right? Because immediately, Germany's going over the deficit target itself. France is going over the deficit target. So there was already some kind of wavering in the ranks about whether or not the hands of sovereigns could ever actually be tied. And by the time you get to 2015 with the Eurozone crisis, and they're sort of bailing out or bailing in the banks, however you want to look at it, then a lot more of the people in the kind of neoliberal and ordoliberal group started to lose faith in the European project, which is where you get the roots of things like the Alternative for Germany party. And when Jacques Delors was the, the European Commission president uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was concern that he was going to uh, take the, uh, the formation in too social democratic a direction. And certainly the, the Brits never trusted him because <laughs> he's French. But, uh, you know, there was this, uh, this notion that uh, it was a big uh, statist plot. Uh, and uh, even uh, the single market won some support for, from unions, he said, because uh, the structural and regional funds uh, meant uh, some kind of emphasis on a social union. Uh, so even mm-hmm. that Maastricht era, the, the politics were um, somewhat uh, confusing in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to forget that Europe and what European integration should look like has always been a kind of a battlefield, right? I mean, it's never moved in one direction. It's telling that in the 1970s, you had Euro-communists and people like um, Dinelli and Berlinguer were arguing for more integration because they thought that would be a way to sort of harmonize well, contracts and create better conditions for workers. So yeah, when Delors becomes the European Commission president and ushers in the European Union, there was also some people who were worried that, as Thatcher said, quote unquote, we might get socialism through the back Delors. So the, the British in particular were very wary already in the early 90s. Um, it was, I guess, the group I'm talking about that had the sort of the constitutionalism tended to be more the German side of the neoliberal group. But for sure, in 1988 already when Thatcher says that we have not rolled back the state at home just to see a super state rolled out from Brussels. There were people within the kind of the neoliberal Tory group who already were jumping on this as as evidence that Europe was a wrong turn and started organizing as such. And the groups that they formed at the time, including something called the Bruges Group, named after the place where Thatcher gave her famous speech against Europe in Bruges, they now claim themselves as having provided the intellectual foundation for the decision to leave Europe. So there's a pretty direct intellectual genealogy there, at least on the kind of supply side of the the ideological entrepreneurs working here. That position was that the EU was some sort of socialist plot in disguise. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a kind of a recurrent story with the neoliberal movement in the last 70 years, really, which is you know, ideally, they want to see the market as a kind of self-organizing, spontaneous order. But they're smart enough to know that it never actually works that way. So the actual proactive neoliberal project is always about designing institutions, laws, new states, supranational institutions to sort of encase the market and allow it to the space to operate. What tends to happen is they sort of envision a new institutional arrangement. And then as soon as it comes into being, they worry that it's going to be taken over by the socialists. The League of Nations, they hope, could become a kind of substitute for the British Empire. But then they're worried that it might become sort of the object of status powers. The United Nations looks like it might be able to protect global capitalism, but then they're worried it's going to be taken over by global south socialists. Same way with the European Union. They hope that it can be this kind of faceless guardian of the market. But then they realize very quickly that it's impossible to actually depoliticize anything. That the moment you produce something like that, it becomes a new 
terrain of struggle. They seem to have idiosyncratic definitions of, of both socialism and elites. Business elites, banking elites, are different from Brussels bureaucrat elites, but they seem to worry more about the, uh, the bureaucrat elites, right? There's a very important and interesting turning point at the at the beginning of the 1990s in the internal discussions among these neoliberal economists and political scientists and think tankers. The turn is that they had previously followed Hayek, basically, and Hayek and Buchanan both tended to argue that the masses couldn't be trusted. So you needed to produce institutions that would at some level direct the energies of the masses in such a way that would probably lead to a constraint, a further constraint of their capacity to exercise democratic choice. By the 90s, though, and, and the EU becomes like a signature case of this, many neoliberals start to worry that it was actually the elite who are the only last true believers in socialism. The person who is actually the most, in a way, insightful about this is the libertarian Murray Rothbard, who said that, why do we actually worry about the people turning towards socialism? The people see their interests, you know, mirrored in their 401ks. They're as attached to the Wall Street and the market as anyone is. The unions are more or less gone, so that that's not a kind of countervailing force anymore. It's actually only these people who kind of operate what they saw as the kind of distributive state, working for Brussels or Washington, who actually still have a stake in, in the big state. So the early 90s moment, you get a, a quite proper theorization of the possibility that the masses can actually be weaponized against the elites rather than the old Hayekian idea, which is the elites are necessary to constrain the masses. So that plays out in a couple different ways. And in, in the case of um, the European, mostly the Swiss and the British neoliberals, they start to talk about in the 90s about the usefulness of referenda and direct democracy, not because they have any particular commitment to the idea of the sort of volonté générale being expressed, but because they think that the people actually is more free market oriented than their rulers. So this is where you get what seems like a kind of inconsistency in the emergence of something like so-called neoliberal populism, where you have people who both believe in constrained democracy, but then seem to be advocating things like direct democracy. And the two things don't seem to work together unless you see that they actually thought that certain questions when posed correctly could be used to kind of shatter elite consensus. And, and the, I mean, the Brexit referendum is a signature example of this. Yeah, I was going to ask, this is the thinking behind the uh, putting uh, the, the Brexit issue up to a vote. Because they didn't trust Parliament to do the right thing? No, because they believed that there was a kind of, there was a kind of a complicity and a kind of a collective buy-in with the status quo between the city of London, the, the sort of old school corporate elites, Westminster, and Brussels, that there was a kind of a stagnant status quo that needed to be, you know, given a short, sharp shock. And the way that they could do that was to turn the, the act, activism of the people against the elites. And, and so in that sense, there is a kind of validity, I think, to their, to their framing. And it, it has a prehistory, which you can see, especially, interestingly enough, one of the big inspiration line of thinking was Switzerland, because Switzerland has a very robust tradition of popular referenda. And in the 90s, you got something called the Swiss People's Party, the SDP, under a guy named Christoph Blocher. He combined um, appeals to free market, small state organization with a kind of anti-immigrant and anti-rhetoric and, and used the kind of mechanism of direct democracy to advance his agenda. So that was a kind of conversation that was happening between German-speaking neoliberals and British neoliberals 90s. 
and Nigel Farage, for example, published with this Bruges group that I mentioned. So he was directly connected to the to the groups around the Institute of Economic Affairs and and the Center for a New Europe, which were these other kind of Euroskeptic right wing neoliberal think tanks that Dieter Pleva and I talk about in the piece. They also seem to have an idiosyncratic definition of socialism. Environmental regulation or labor regulations is socialism. It doesn't have anything to do with you know the the ownership of the means of production. Well, that's right. I mean, I think it's it's important to see that or remember that since the 1930s, the real enemy for neoliberals has been the near enemy, right? So, yes, the position in the 1930s and then with Hayek's road to serfdom was aimed against fascism and communism. But you'd be surprised how infrequently the topic of outright communism actually comes up in the discussions of neoliberals from the 1940s to the 1990s. It's more often than not a, a, a discussion about uh, what they saw as the kind of the near enemy of social democracy. And that's what they saw the Democratic Party moving towards, as well as the Labour Party in England and the Social Democrats in Germany. So when when the wall fell, the absolute consensus amongst the kind of true believer neoliberals was, as James Buchanan put it, socialism is dead, but Leviathan lives on. And there was actually more of a danger now that the outright communist bloc was more or less gone, because now it was harder to sort of see the enemy, right? Because the insidiousness of, the, of large state thinking um, had sort of seeped into the common sense of the supposed end of history, such that now the war of ideas needed to be sort of refought against what was seen as the kind of victory of liberal capitalism, but they saw as the victory of a, a certain brand of statist socialist capitalism. So you're absolutely right that it's not at all like a strict definition based on ownership, but it's based on social spending, the size of the state. And it's and in, as political scientists have shown, it is true that sort of aggregate social spending didn't necessarily go down in the Thatcher and Reagan years. You know, the welfare state wasn't actually dismantled. Healthcare spending had with an aging population and so on and so on. The sort of new windmill that they're tilting against in the 90s is what they see first as this kind of rebooted social democracy by way of the Delors vision of a social Europe. But then through the 90s, more and more, what you just mentioned, environmental regulations become the bugbear. And now, speaking from 2019, the primary enemy, I would say, in the minds of the sort of libertarian and neoliberal camp is what they call green socialism, right? So they are full on mobilized now after sort of starting out in the 1990s against EPA and against um, EU environmental regulations. Now they're fully mobilized against what they see as the threat of the rise of the green parties in Europe, the popularity of the Green New Deal in the United States and Britain. This is the guise in which the old red menace has sort of reinvented itself. I'm speaking with Quinn Slobodian, Associate Professor of History at Wellesley and author of Globalists. The people on the left who've embraced Brexit, the Lexiteers, think that Brussels is an obstacle to a socialist agenda. Um, how do we reconcile these points of view? To say that there were, there were sort of card-carrying neoliberals who were opposed to Europe through the 1990s isn't to say that, therefore, the EU was a kind of anti-neoliberal institution. It, it wasn't. I mean, this is the helpfulness of, of separating out these sort of categories of analysis, like talking about the neoliberals as, you know, a relatively discrete group of people versus sort of neoliberal as a description of a certain sort of institutional framework. And it's obviously true that the kind of constraints on expansionary spending, the constraints on things like more aggressive forms of worker ownership and expropriation and state aid 
for, let's say, more green enterprises versus more competitive enterprise. I mean, there are a lot of ways that that the European Union indeed puts constraints on potentially transformative socialist program. There's no question of that. And and I think no one on the left in the UK, for example, who who are remainers is deny that. So the the sort of most common position you hear there is like the EU is a nightmare, but the solution will not get any better if we spontaneously leave it because the forces right now that are politically behind Brexit are toxic and are uh, fully mobilized and and um, armed in the direction of a, a version of Britain which is which is actually a more degraded social version of Britain compared to the present one. Most people, and it, it's, hard, it's hard to deny, see that the direction of of a Britain after after Brexit is more likely to be subject to the demands of of the United States in such a way that the NHS is open to competition, the um, agriculture subsidies for sure are ended, transforming the kind of the nature of of the British landscape and so on. There's all kinds of ways that it's not going to look any better after Brexit. But that being said, you know, that's a kind of a non-answer to the, the Lexit position, which is that, listen, you say remain and reform. I mean, this is the kind of Richard Tuck position, right? You say remain and reform, but what does that actually mean? How can you actually change the constitutional constraints of the EU without these absurd supermajorities amongst all the EU states? Like, isn't it the case that if you stay in the EU, all of these plans for a transformative left labor future are going to be, you know, defanged, if not destroyed from the outset? And this is not a question that is abstract, right? I mean, if 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 Corbyn wins the general election, then a lot of the things that left labor think tanks like Commonwealth and IPPR have been working on will become the policies to be rolled out in the coming months. So they've been in consultation, as, as I know from talking to some of them, with lawyers about, hey, how much of this stuff we're talking about can actually get done under EU regulations? And amazingly enough, the answer is that you actually can get around a lot of these EU regulations, so they tell me, by appealing upward to the WTO. This is, this is where we're at, right? Is the myth of liberation in real time right here, that you, know, you might actually get out of one neoliberal sort of carapace by bringing in some backup from the other one. The myth of Brexit has become the, the myth of exit, right? That myth that you can shear yourself off from ties to the material world and the terrestrial world and sort of, you know, blissfully drift away. And that's not true. I mean, the, it's, either, it's either this set of institutions or a different set of institutions. It's not, there is not an option for zero institutional constraints. So I think being realistic about that is the way that the, the sort of more sober-minded and, and still radical socialists of the British left are looking at this. Yeah, I heard uh, one speaking the other night who suggested something like civil disobedience if a Corbyn government takes hold and just dare the EU to um, punish them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the message of 2014-15 with the Eurozone crisis is that there actually are no constraints. The discretionary power is close to absolute at the highest level of the EU. They use that discretionary power in such a way that, you know, it was designed to punish the Greek people and and save German capital. But what people have to see when they look at it is like, what if it could be used another way, right? I mean, this is the sort of Adam II's position is that, yes, QE was used in certain ways to like individual savings and to kind of and bail in big bank. But what if you took it to QE, right? And, and these things are not as they sound because there is a kind of a constituency within the central banking community that is, you know, realistic enough to know that 
the economy will go to hell as the climate gets worse. And so preventative measures need to be taken. And it's, you know, it's not a very hopeful socialist gesture to think about kind of alliances with central bankers. But once we've all been sort of exposed to the sheer executive sovereign power of central bankers, as we have been in the last 10 years, it would be foolish to dismiss it out of hand or think that you, that you don't need to consider it sort of tactically. I, I want to get back to uh, some of this uh, opposition to the EU. Um, the Bruges uh, think tank, the Bruges group uh, that was uh, named after the Thatcher speech, there are some really distasteful characters around that, right? But this, uh, one of the founding members of the Forza Italia party, uh, Berlusconi guy, they quickly get into some kind of reactionary nationalism in their opposition to the EU and, uh, and a very um, exclusionist, xenophobic kind of patriotism that uh, it got ugly pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the best way to to think about this or the way that I tend to, and this actually is, goes for libertarians very much as much as neoliberals, is if you think about neoliberals and libertarians as kind of individualists, right, the people who believe that that the market should somehow solve as many of our problems as it possibly can. That doesn't sort of eliminate the question of institutional design or institutional order or the kind of idea of what preconditions are necessary for that individualism. It's kind of, it begs it, right? It, it says, well, what do we need to be able to be individualists? And the big switch that happens that you're referring to in the ranks of some of these sort of neoliberal nationalists, especially over the course of the 90s, is they start to think again about culture and the sort of the substrate of society that is necessary for a healthy market. And in that sense, they're actually right in line with a lot of discussions happening in mainstream economics. I mean, Douglas North, the father of new institutionalist economics, wins the Nobel Prize in the early 90s. And people are they, people like David Landis and economic historians are actually talking more and more in the 90s about what kind of spiritual worldviews, what kind of values, what kind of sort of Weberian mindsets are required to to be rich and to become a, you know, a growing economic power. And a lot of the discussion that is happening in the kind of airport books is, is even is even revolving around notions like that. So a lot of the, the neoliberals in the 90s in their opposition to the EU also sort of rediscover the important uh, the importance of certain quote unquote European cultural traits. And they begin to worry that, that the increased immigration, not just within Europe, but from outside Europe into Europe, is sort of diluting the cultural pool of market virtues. So their, their opposition to incorporation in the EU becomes driven, yes, by a kind of anti-bureaucratic fear of socialist takeover, but then also by this sense that the walls of the nation need to be made thicker or higher to be able to preserve this sort of cultural human capital that is contained within it. And that's where, you know, you, your eyebrows are raised and certainly mine are when I'm reading about this stuff where you ask yourself, like, whoa, how is it that the people that supposedly believe in homo economicus above all now are suddenly so worried about the difference between people from Muslim countries and African countries? That anticipated my next question, which is that a lot of them don't really believe in homo economicus. Hayek was, was not fond of mathematical economics or the calculating uh, mindset that homo economicus is supposed to represent, you know, what, what Keynes called the Benthamite contraption. He was quite critical of that, right? He was, absolutely, right? He calls it the, the skeleton in the, in the closet of mainstream economics. So he, he thought he never believed in that as, uh, 
as an accurate way to describe the world or even as a kind of a working supposition to make sense of economic behavior. He was weaving things in from new fields like sociobiology and systems theory from the 1970s especially. And he started then, then talking a lot about something that grew to almost dominate his writing by the end of his life, which is the idea of cultural evolution, a totally idiosyncratic take on evolution that almost no other scientist follows. And the idea being that there are kind of cultural traits from generation to generation that develop and more successful ones win out and are transmitted to the next generation. And the way that we can measure the success of cultural evolution is through the number of people that are produced by different cultures. So population size becomes like the final indicator of uh, cultural fitness. So he's so he will say, you know, you know, look at the look at how quickly certain um, groups grew. And now his argument is that that countries of the global south, for example, even though they have a high level of population growth, growth is happening in a sort of a parasitic way because of the economic growth, um, innovations and opportunities produced by the European countries. It's a peculiar twist that actually, to me, opens up a lot of perspectives on where this hybrid, scientized libertarianism of people like Quillat sort of get their app culturally. That was the first part of an interview with Quinn Slobodian, author of Globalists and a contributor to the Fordham University Press Collection, Mutant Neoliberalism. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the first movement of the Concerto for Nine Instruments by Anton Webern, who was composing in the same interwar Vienna as Hayek was concocting neoliberalism. That was from the complete Webern collection, supervised by Pierre Boulez. A few years later, Webern's music would be denounced by the Nazis as cultural Bolshevism. Now part two of my interview with Quinn Slobodian, where we go more deeply into the relation of the neoliberals to the revolutions we refer to as 1968. The spirit of rebellion and egalitarianism that year symbolizes were potent fuel for reaction. Skype garbled a few passages of the interview. For example, the title of James Buchanan's critique of college campuses in the 60s is Academia in Anarchy. Quinn Slobodian. Some of these actual existing right-wing parties in, in Europe, like AFD, have neoliberal economics and kind of nationalist policy. Um, how do we reconcile those two? I mean, most people would think that neoliberals were internationalists, but uh, how does AFD and such think of uh, the, their economic policy in relation to uh, their cultural policy? I think you do need to put it a bit in the longer historical perspective. So 
I mean, this is the story I tell in, in my book is, is, is neoliberals from the 1930s, like the chief enemy is, is nationalism, economic nationalism, right? From the 30s until the 90s, they kind of saw that as the chief threat, right? They saw socialism as having this kinship with nationalism. And so you needed to go above the nation and build institutions that managed to kind of you know, guide us towards more capitalist um, type relations. And the 90s seemed like the pinnacle of their success in a way, right? You got NAFTA, you got the EU, you got the WTO, all three things that seemed to like lock in a certain kind of capitalist freedom at the, at their global level. Already, you know, 10 years later, they're starting to worry that that supernational apparatus is, is, is not always cracked up to be, right? That it's actually either something to be taken over by the socialists or something that is being misused by the early 2000s, misused by China as a kind of devious actor within the world economy. And then by the 2010s, especially with the refugee crisis, by people who are taking advantage of the open, open borders within Europe policy. Of course, the borders on the outside of Europe are very strong. So a party like the AFD, the alternative for Germany, comes right out of this development. They are founded by a clutch of properly ordoliberal economics professors. Right? When they say alternative, what they mean is an alternative to the euro, and the alternative to the euro is going back to the Deutschmark. They quickly sort of create bonds with other parties that are, or other sort of constituencies that are against Europe, but against Europe more for reasons of immigration and cultural assimilation than anything. And at first, and most people see it this way, it's a kind of uneasy alliance. If you read most of the political science literature or even the journalism, they'll say, well, there's kind of the one ordoliberal wing of monetary people and who believe in sort of fiscal austerity and breaking up the eurozone. And on the other hand, you have these kind of cultural conservatives who are Islamophobic and driven by the need for like more white German babies, basically. And they have this sort of uneasy alliance and the xenophobes are winning out over time and marginalizing the, the monetary people. That, that would be the, the normal narrative and that these two things are somehow irreconcilable, sort of, as you're saying, at a basic at a basic level. But but they're not actually. And they're not irreconcilable. And they're explained by kind of intellectuals within the party itself. And the way they explain it is by combining, as I've been saying, a kind of a language of the need for national competitiveness and escape from supranational institutions to kind of keep the vitality of economic growth alive. And then also by biologizing and culturalizing ideas of economic capacity. So you have this sociologist who's close to the AFD, who's also the founder of the Hayek Society named Erich Veda. And for him, there's no inconsistency at all between these two positions. You need to reinstate the nation as the, as the agent of competition because it is more nimble, it is more you know, flexible, it's more responsive to global demand, and therefore it's a better economic actor, unlike the sort of cumbersome apparatus of the EU. And you need to restrict immigration from countries like Turkey and, um, you know, Syria and Eritrea, because these places have populations with low human capital, as measured as he does in IQ. And therefore, to bring them in would decrease German competitiveness, increase the burden on the welfare state, and produce a kind of a drag on what needs to be the kind of more agile form that the German economy will take in future years. So that form of like xenophobic neoliberal nationalism, far from being kind of internally contradictory, is actually more and more the norm of the the so-called populist parties in Europe right now. In their view, uh, people from the Middle East or even Romanians, perhaps, are not just not fit for capitalism. 
they have less capacity to compete in the market. And they, I, I mean, the word human capital comes up a great deal for them. And obviously, that's a word that is not tainted uh, irrevocably. It's used by a lot of progressive economists. And, and usually the point is that we are not born with X amount of human capital. You know, to talk about human capital is to promote things like early childhood intervention, spending on education, retraining, and so on. So it's not a, a retrograde category in itself but it's one that they use in a retrograde way because they, they turn human capital into a kind of um, an essence, a kind of biologized essence that, that you have as a member of a population and that in, they can never be really sort of altered much from its starting point. They hark back to the kind of the earliest versions of, of intelligence testing where scientific racism was used in such a way to say, well, these populations have a capacity to achieve and these ones do not. In a way, they're they're just grasping right back to that, but then upgrading it into kind of the world of doing business rankings and competitiveness. So they kind of McKinseyize that old school scientific racism, right? So it's not just a question of you know guarding the folk and repopulating the green fertile landscape or whatever. It's not like that. They want to repopulate the green fertile landscape with white Germans because then they will have a whole new class of managers and innovators to compete globally in world markets to keep Germans edge as export um, meister. It's not an inward looking xenophobia. It's actually an outward looking xenophobia, which is part of what makes it, I think, distinct. And I think that gets missed a lot in the journalism and the coverage. So this takes me to uh, a topic that explains some of this evolution in neoliberal thought, the reaction to 68, a year, now 51 years ago, uh, that still um, seems to exercise a very profound influence over our current politics. But before that, it's just interesting, uh, at the beginning of that paper, you write about um, how Buchanan and Friedman saw the 60s uh, as uh, an unpleasant byproduct of excessively low tuition. It's getting too easy for... uh, the working class to get into college. And what we needed to do was raise tuition. And uh, even some talked about creating a part-time faculty, uh, creating the, the, you know, the adjunct order we know today. Um, what about that understanding of 68? What were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the expansion of opportunity for public education is, it's easy to forget how unprecedented it was, right, in the United States. And then also in the UK and continental Europe, too. The, the idea that it would be normal to go to college or university as opposed to exceptional or abnormal was it was totally new, right? I mean, that had never been the case before that the majority of the population would have higher education. And of course, that was done through a huge sort of public subsidization of education that not just the GI Bill in the US, but just a, you know, a high level of public spending going into these institutions of teaching and research. The reaction of someone like Friedman or Buchanan, both of who were observing this from the point of California in the 1960s, was to think that the fact that public education was subsidized, first of all, in Friedman's framing, meant that poor people were paying for middle class people to go to university. That was his most sort of successful or consistent messaging of it. That the truly, the the, the 50% or however many it was of people who didn't go to higher ed through their taxes were paying for the, the better off, right? So, and this is, of course, exactly the thing you hear now when you when you hear discussion of free tuition under a Warren or Sanders administration. The argument there was also that because the people weren't paying for it, they didn't value it, right? So they so they went and just screwed off and protested and, you know, like did drugs and had sex or whatever they were doing in the sixties. And they didn't take seriously the acquisition of the skills necessary to 
make it in the workplace afterwards, right? And in a way, of course, that's partially true, right? It has to be true. And this was this is why someone like Marcuse saw students as a kind of a reservoir of potentially radical mobilization because they weren't subject to the day-to-day constraints of employability and so on. They could think about other things and think critically. And all of those things are true in a way. The difference is that you know, sort of leftist radicals saw that as a good thing and people like Buchanan and and uh, and saw it as an example of what Buchanan titled his book in anarchy. So the the proposal there was yeah to marketize higher education. Melinda Cooper talks about this at some length in her book Family Values, the idea of um, you know not just charging tuition but introducing loan driven education. So producing this cycle of intergenerational debt. The most radical version of this, and this is what. Uh, Edward Nika has written about in a chapter of the volume that Dieter and I and Phil Murawski are publishing with Verso in the next few months, was was the proposal coming from George Stigler of the University of Chicago, compatriot of, of Friedman's. And his idea there was, as you're saying, to kind of hive off teaching from research. So his idea was, why do we even put these things together? Why do we have institutions that are both research and teaching institutions? What we should do is have low-paid, flexible adjunct professors teaching people and then a class of high-end researchers and experts who can just devote themselves to research and they can then have more consistent contracts something more like tenure this was his idea of a kind of a two-tiered system for higher education and as you sort of indicated that's basically what we're moving towards these people were quite marginal at the time and this has become dominant policy it's amazing how that happened yeah i mean it, there are moments of sort of direct influence, especially with Friedman in, in California, but it's not so much, for me, it's not so much a story of saying like they did it, right? It's more of a, a way of looking at them as kind of farsighted sort of visionaries to the way things were going. And sort of when you look back and see what they saw as necessary to get to that point that they envisioned, then it's helpful as a historian to sort of to sort of help explain the broader process, right? Because it, it's not just a one-to-one influence story, but the kind of things that they saw as being important to do, like say, you know, liberalizing student loans, introducing tuition fees, creating flexible labor markets. Those were all things that happened for a whole bunch of reasons that thankfully we have good sociologists and historians to sort of unpick. But as just these kind of dark prophets, in a way, of our own present, I find them helpful ways to historicize our own moment. I'm speaking with Quinn Slobodian, Associate Professor of History at Wellesley and author of Globalists. The rebellions of 68 uh, really distressed these characters, and they found an eruption of barbarian uh, sentiments. Uh, And it's interesting how they divided uh, in their reading of this. Hayek, for example, you say, uh, socialists have the support of inherited instinct. This is some kind of instinctive, uh, primitive uh, feeling erupting, and that the, the, the socialist impulse is based on some sort of really primitive urges. Whereas you got uh, Rothbard with his genetic um, racist worldview. So could you talk about this split uh, within uh, the neoliberal movement in uh, how they read 68? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Hayek, it, it, it fits directly with what I was saying about his cultural evolution idea, right? So he he believed that we had gone from the kind of dynamics of the savanna and the tribe, where we lived in these small groups, and we indeed, you know, didn't have to monetize anything. And we shared everything, but we lived at a very low, low level of options and alternatives and choices. We kind of just barely got by. As humanity became more complex, 
relationships became more anonymous and more faceless. And we then transacted and exchanged with people we might never meet or um, we might not even know the name of, we might not know where they came from in the world. I mean, this is the, the, the classic line that Milton Friedman uses also in his description of the pencil as having been the work of sort of thousands of anonymous faces of people we would never know and from places dispersed around the world. So Hayek's point though is that that process of the, the division of labor and the kind of expansion of markets leads to a kind of coldness, absence of empathy for those distant peoples. Because if we actually thought all the time about the kind of conditions necessary to produce everything that we consume every day, we would become like crippled by, <laughs> you know, compassion and distress and horror. And we can't have that. <laughs> no, we wouldn't want that. So that's what he thought that, you know, socialism tapped into was actually this this necessarily absent empathy for the rest of the world's population. And the moment we tapped into that, we were channeling what he called the atavism of social justice, right? So this desire to make the world more just or to make it more fair or to make redistribution something that, you know, actually took place. All that is, is us wanting to go back to the savannah. We just want to be in the tribe again. And if we did that, even if we tried, we would sort of shatter the machinery of the world economy and we would all die. So he says billions of people would die if the efforts of achieving social justice were actually carried out. It's actually kind of a profound insight, I think. I mean, I think it's, among other things, these people take socialism very seriously in the sense that they see it as an existential threat to their own worldview. And it's then instructive to say, well, what is it about it that scares them so much? And if what it is that scares them is that, you know, if people start to actually care about each other, at, even at, if, at you know, great distances, then the machinery of capitalism will break down. Then that might mean that caring about people at great distances is like a good thing for us to be doing, right? Because if we want to overcome the machinery of capitalism, get to something else. The question then is raised, what will the new machinery look like, of course? But that impulse of empathy is one that he was, he was very cagey about and scared of. And so he saw the 60s as being all about this new tribalism, communitarianism, and that therefore it was all working completely contrary to the spirit of capitalism. Like them or not, you have to admire the clarity of thought of these characters. I mean, yeah. they really zero on and stuff uh, and express it very clearly uh, in ways yeah. that uh, really dazzle. Yeah. Well, in there, I mean, someone like Hayek, you know, the, the best thing he brought out of the kind of the omnivorous intellectual scene of interwar Vienna was this total disregard for disciplinary boundaries, right? I mean, that's that's what I, why I find it kind of laughable when people describe, you know, Hayek's philosophy as like economistic or something. I'm like, it, it's it's everything, <laughs> almost except economistic, right? He's bringing in things from theology and biology and system theory and cybernetics. I mean, he's totally uh, just running roughshod over some idea of silos of the university and. And that part of, of his way of approaching a problem, I think, is is admirable, or at least like, you know, worthy of, of taking seriously. Um, but then, so Murray Rothbard, who's what, sort of one of Hayek's protégés in a way, Brooklyn-born libertarian, about 20 years younger than Hayek, uh, born in the 20s, I think, enters the Montpellier Society in the 50s at Hayek's invitation. And so he is like in his 30s and early 40s when the 60s are happening coming at it not from the perspective of a middle-aged man like Hayek but perspective of uh, almost middle-aged man uh, and almost a young man and so he saw the 60s as much as uh, they would see the potential of the masses in the 90s he saw the 60s also as this kind of weapon 
the students were uprising against the draft. They were rising up against their kind of um, instrumentalization by the government and by corporations. And he thought that they could, libertarians could tap into that and turn that into like a reservoir of um, anti-elitist power. So he also saw the 60s as composed of a bunch of like, you know, naive Rousseauian, sentimentalist, noble savage wannabes. But on the other hand, he thought maybe these could be useful noble savage wannabes, right? Maybe maybe we can use them a revolution against this, the, the powers that be. And he, he immediately became disenchanted with that, or almost immediately by the earth, he already turned against that. And as he turned against it, he turned towards a very a very concrete kind of rebooted scientific racism, which for him then sort of set new boundaries for what a good community could be. So he started to think that because we were unequal by nature, uh, that inequality lumped in, in very predictable ways, according to first sex, so women were less capable than men, and then by race. So there was a hierarchy of ability among the races that mostly measurable and the indicator was most important for him was an IQ. So we needed to think about, in his way of thinking, kind of social orders that would tap into these capable populations and then prevent the uncapable ones from acting as sort of parasites on the body of the productive ones. And, and there he remarkably um, embraced visions of racial separatism. So in the 1960s and 70s and into the 90s, he was very positive about Malcolm X, of being very negative about Martin Luther King Jr. And into the 90s, became very excited about uh, neo-Confederates and the idea of white separatism. So this is why Rothbard is the favorite libertarian of the alt-right libertarians. Well, they also lean towards von Mises, too, because they Hayek was too much of a social democrat or something, right? And von Mises was more compatible with his paleocon racist worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is true that if you, you don't have to really look too hard in Hayek, even the road to serfdom or constitution of liberties, certainly to see that he grants all kinds of aspects of the social state as being possible within his ideal vision. And Mises is true, was more dogmatic about that. And then very importantly for them, there's a kind of like some lines in passing where um, Mises seems to sort of leave the door open for the possibility of a kind of um, acceptable racial theory. Uh, he's, he's very negative, of course, against National Socialism and Hitler. He was himself a Jew. He thought that the vision of, of Nazi racial science was completely absurd and, 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 and wrong. But he still said we need to keep open the idea that there is something to that theory of race which determines why some civilizations flourish and some do not. So Rothbart seizes on that part of Mises that like literally a couple of lines of Mises, his student Hans Hermann Hoppe, who is the true kind of standard bearer of racist libertarianism, seizes on those lines too and writes the introduction to the latest version of human action and mentions those lines there. You get a peculiar thing in both of these cases and almost everything I've described, right, which is these neoliberals and libertarians who we think about as believing in featureless homo economicus and a kind of self-regulating market turn out to be obsessed with the exact opposite, with ways that humans are different and in essentialized ways, and then the kind of institutions necessary to make a market work. Well, and you say the lesson of 68 for neoliberals was that if the left speaks the language of equality, they would rediscover the language of difference. So we're seeing this constantly with uh, the neoliberals. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, interesting. I, I've just started reading Corey Robbins' book on um, Clarence Thomas. And in the first chapter, he cites Rothbard's positive take on Clarence Thomas, because Rothbard saw what he saw, what, saw what he believed to be a kind of acknowledgement of difference in, in, um, in Thomas. And he sort of recognized what he believed to be the kind of black nationalism of Clarence Thomas as being kind of a salutary acceptance that people are divided racially and that can never change. And any attempt to become sort of post-racial or colorblind is like, you know, just the road to another kind of redistributive socialism. So that, that I think underestimated, I think, is that the way that that the 1960s ethos of equality was fought back against. And again, we come to the kind of world of of Quillette and so on is to say, no, the, the human difference is deeply rooted, not just, you know, in our traditions or our values, but in our very in our very genes and the makeup of our bodies. And that's it's, it's, it's an extremely dangerous kind of a reactionary um, synthesis that's happening, I think, in the last couple of decades. And then meanwhile, many of the actual 68ers themselves entered government like Elska Fisher or uh, got lost in the nonprofit world of small projects and local resistance. Or they became Green Party people like uh, Dan, Daniel Cohen-Bendit or um, Hans Christian Strubelo, sort of this iconic old 68er type in Berlin. But it's just remarkable how um, you know this 68 still... Um shapes so much of our consciousness. It really is. I mean, I think much more so explicitly in Germany and other parts of Europe than in the US. I mean, like the 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 byword of 68 alone is not something that gets conjured up in the same way, obviously, in the United States as it does there. And there, um, because in a way the 68ers have become the establishment, now the way that you can be anti-establishment is to be against the 68ers, right? So that is the kind of the way that the young far right parties of the identitarians and identity Europa and so on sort of find their edge is by seeing themselves as the kind of the young vanguard against what is now a kind of overgrown and kind of complacent uh, 68 or elite class. I was Quinn Slobodian, an associate professor of history at Wellesley. His book Globalists was published last year by Harvard University Press. His essay on neoliberalism and the EU can be found in the collection Mutant Neoliberalism, just out from Fordham University Press. We'll be talking to a few other contributors in the coming weeks. You can find Slobodian's essays on 1968 by Googling. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go at this. Some of the spirit of 1968, though it actually came out a year later, we can be together by the Jefferson Airplane. Till next week, bye. All your private property is targeted for your enemy.